0: Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. So today we're here with Jeffrey Gordon, president of the American Birding Association. How are you doing today, Jeff?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Oh, really good. Really good. So uh, how long have you been president of the American Birding Association?
1: Just over two years. Um started in November of two thousand ten
0: and so when you took over the organization you came from a writer and guide background is that correct
1: yeah um, the um, i I sort of have cobbled together a, a career uh, from a variety of, uh, of birding things um, you know starting as like kind of a park ranger interpretive naturalist kind of person and and then uh, a long time as bird tour leader with Victor Manuel Nature Tours and others. And, um, and then uh, for uh, a few years, um, well, managing a nature center. And then really as kind of a freelance writer, speaker, multimedia producer, bird bum.
0: Bird bum. So now you're a professional <laughs> bird bum.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm a bird bum with a desk.
0: And so what is the general uh, uh, mission of the American Birding Association?
1: The, the mission, if you want the statement, is um, the ABA inspires all people to enjoy and protect wild birds. Um, you know, and as mission statements tend to be, that's fairly broad. Um, but to me, um, I... You know, and I'm probably going to go completely a cropper on my mythology here, but I mean, there's almost kind of a Promethean aspect to it where you are uh, really concerned with sharing the spark. Um, And there's so many ways to approach birding, to um, practice birding. Um, I think ABA, um, our mission is to kind of. Create the conditions where lightning can strike. Mm-hmm. There may be some routes that are more typical routes for that. Um, you know uh, obviously, we're well known for you know sort of bird identification, bird finding, bird listing. And I would argue that many, many of, of us who have a long-term association with birding um, start in that vein start in kind of uh, you know just very very passionate excited sometimes overheated kind of uh, you know oh my gosh I've discovered these things now I'm just going to go out and see as many of them as I possibly can kind of thing um, but um, you know and some stay with that forever some go in different directions um, but you know I I, I see the ABA uh, as being about meeting people wherever they are. Um, If there are people in birding a while and they're, you know, just struggling to understand molts and gulls and flycatchers, ABA can offer those people something. If uh, they have virtually no exposure to birds and may not even ever become ABA members, but, you know, just sometimes it's as simple as grabbing somebody by the shoulder and dragging them over to the spotting scope and saying, Hey, look at this. You're not going to believe it.
0: Right. So it's, it's getting that passion for birds in the general populace is really what your, your mission is.
1: All people enjoy and protect wild birds.
0: Right. And so how did you get into birding? Were you a lifelong birder or how did that come about?
1: Um, not exactly. I, um, I, I'm a lifelong natural history nut, um, and that was really fostered a lot by my mom, who was a volunteer guide for the Delaware Nature Society when it was founded. It's founded the year I was born, uh, 1964, and uh, she was one of their early volunteer guides. Her big thing was wildflowers, actually, but she was interested in a little bit of everything, and she just dragged me along. When she was doing a class for the first graders and I was four, you know, I'd go along and I just went through this big succession of, you know, I'd get into snakes for a year and then I'd be into marine biology for 6 months and then I'd hop over to, you know, astronomy or whatever and I just kind of flitted and um knew a bit about birds, you know, but my and I thought birds like peregrine falcons and you know, I saw like the last of the curlews after school special and I thought Birds like that were cool, but I never thought I would see them um, and the birds that I did have experience with, other than the birds in the at the feeders in the yard were yeah they 're all just little and flitty and they 're too hard to see and too hard to tell apart and so they just weren 't my thing. I was much more excited about something I could turn over a rock and grab um, but I went on a trip with that Delaware Nature Society, uh, when I was 12 to the Everglades in Florida and I had started taking pictures of nature at that point and all those spoonbills and wood storks and all those wading birds down there and that they posed and let you look at them and photograph them. And I just, I came back from that trip and started to actually look at the birds around me in Delaware and the birds in the yard. And, um, And as silly as this sounds, I was looking at my thistle feeder one day in the backyard. And I knew enough about birds. You know, I knew goldfinches. I even knew that goldfinches got dull colored in the winter. And I knew that you could tell the male from the female goldfinches because the females were streaky. And I'm looking at my feeder and I'm looking at my golden guide. And just suddenly, like a light bulb going off, I realized... Those streaky things aren't female goldfinches. They're they're another bird entirely. It's called a pine siskin. That was it. It's over.
0: <laughs> right. So you, you had kind of your first ID challenge in
1: that. Well, yeah. It's, you know, and I've heard people describe so often. It's like, you know, and you'll see this done in films and everything, where it's like just like the horizon recedes and opens, and you just kind of, you know, suddenly – there's this whole world stretched out before you that you didn't realize was there. And, um, it's very interesting to me how many birders can tell the story of their spark bird. And it's very, very reminiscent of conversion experiences that people, you know, describe with religion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like I saw the light, you know,
0: <laughs> and, and, and so you just went and just went on the birding, craze immediately after that
1: well you know i stopped doing this cycling from specialty to specialty and sort of focused on birds i'm still interested in all that other stuff but for whatever reason i just have a knack for birds i have a special affection for them and that's stuck and at this point i don't expect it to change
0: right and so so what you you kept up this passion through high school and in college and then into your prof, your early professional career
1: yeah, I mean, like a lot of people I know who were birders as kids, you know, I I sort of from my perspective, I dialed it way back during college. Of course all my friends in college still thought I was completely rabid, but I didn't feel that way. Right. Um, but um yeah, I went to college and I kind of struggled with what I was gonna major in and what I was gonna do and everything. And um and here here's a sort of cliche of self-discovery. I decided to drop out and go hike the Appalachian Trail, and <laughs> and damn it, if it didn't work, um, I didn't finish the Appalachian Trail. I quit halfway through, but I was um, coming down a long descent in Western Georgia or Western Virginia, and um, just like I decided, I'm going to be a bird tour leader. Uh, which honestly at that point was sort of a nervy decision cuz i only knew one person who'd ever been on a bird tour at that point and uh certainly didn't know anybody who was a leader and right and somehow as one does it happened you know
0: <laughs> right you just well you make that conscious decision and things just start right. yes. this is what i'm going to be there's no other option and right it happens for you
1: Right, but you know it's great i got off the trail i went back to school i finished up i uh went and worked for a couple of seasons in the national park service and and um eventually um you know got got a job with victor and spent 12 years going around the world being a bird tour leader
0: and, and so in your bird tour um what was kind of your concentration um in terms of geography
1: u.s canada on down to about panama
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and um so a lot of experience in there. And then I uh, uh, was in Antarctica a couple times, went to Kenya a couple times, but uh, mostly North America.
0: And out of all those spots, what, you know, I always ask everyone this, mm-hmm. but, you know, what's your favorite spot? You know, if you if you had one mm-hmm. last spot to go birdie in life, where would you
1: mm-hmm. be? Ooh, wow. At this point, um, I'd probably go back to uh, – I I'd, I'd have to think really seriously about the Darien in Panama. I've never been there, mm-hmm. but I've been, you know, to a lot of the rest of Panama. Um that would be that would be high on my list. Um yeah. Oh, the Darien.
0: That's a good answer. <laughs> and um so you take on this you you, you become a nature tour guide with Vent <laughs> and how did you get into the nonprofit world of ABA? How did that come about going from tour leader to the Mm -hmm. kind of the other side of it in the nonprofit? (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I always had this idea and I think, you know, like a lot of people have this dream that they'll um, open a bed and breakfast or, you know, some, something like that for, you know, for a lot of people, they think about being a park ranger or something like that. And, you know, um, even though i I was pretty oriented towards the outdoor education, interpretive natural history, I always had because the Delaware Nature Society and the Delmarva Ornithological Society and 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 some other environmental nonprofits I was exposed to as a kid had such a big effect on my life. I I just kind of took an interest in how they worked and and what they did that was effective and. And that sort of thing. So even though I was doing my bird tour thing, like I took uh, a while off and did a graduate course in environmental institution management, um, I, uh, I just always kind of had an eye cast that way, I guess mm-hmm. is one way to say it. And, um, and, and I did manage a nature center for the Delaware Nature Society for a couple years um, in the uh, mid-2000s. And then uh, I tell you, and, and, you know, sometimes it's only when you turn around and look back that you perceive that maybe you were on a little more structured path than you thought. But this uh, five or six years I spent between that and, and ABA, it, you know, being um, being freelance and everything, there's a certain, you know, hand-to-mouthness that comes in there. But I will say that time was invaluable in terms of, Getting to know the the birding industry, the birding festival circuit, the community i mean um, it it really was helpful you know just getting uh, getting to spend a lot of time with a lot of different people sort of working this industry from different angles and um, I think it's <laughs> been just incredibly helpful um, in trying to kind of chart a new course for the aba
0: right. and so y- you know, I, I, now I've noticed, this is my opinion, but I think ABA has been much more active in the last 18 months than they previously had been. I mean, for a long time, I just viewed it as a great magazine and the listing hub. And that was it. That was my impression of ABA. And so do you feel that, you know, with all your activities that that perception is expanding?
1: Well, yeah, I really do. And, um, And one of the delightful things is that, you know, you get to start to feel, you know, the, the, the changes you're trying to make. And when I, when I say, I don't mean that as a singular me, Uh, it's really, you know, the whole team here, the whole, the board, the staff, everything. I mean, we're, um, we're trying to put a new vibration out there, if I can say that, and, and it's very cool, like, when the, when it starts to echo back to you and you hear, um, you know, just because a lot of people, you know, we're, to us, we live and breathe this stuff every day. We're all inside baseball about everything and following every uptick and downturn. But, you know, for a lot of people out there in the community, there's this very binary, you know, hey, thumbs up, you know, ABA is doing pretty good or ooh, ooh, you know, not, uh, here, I'm hearing some weird stuff, you know, and, and. It's just very cool. It's it's all about momentum, you know. It's like if you're if you're gaining speed, it's a whole different feel than if you're slowing down.
0: Right, and and, <laughs> and so you you started to see the membership numbers turn around and participation of members start start to turn around.
1: Yeah, now ABA, you know, had its high water mark back in the mid '90s, and and had a you know very tough decade and a half um, where it really. You know, basically, cut itself in half, and uh, um, and we saw numbers continue down for almost the first year I was here, and then about uh, September 2011, I think that was kind of the inflection point, and since then it's been all up. Um, so we've got a lot more ground to go, many more hills to climb, <laughs> right. but it it it's really interesting. You know, people fall back on all these management metaphors about it takes time to turn around an aircraft carrier and all this stuff, but darn it if it's not actually kind of (laughs) true.
0: Oh, it's well, it's really true. I mean, it does (laughs) take time to get momentum going and, you know, get people to realize, you know, there's a new sheriff in town and things are Mm going to be run differently now. And Mm -hmm. So you're starting, I noticed, you know, a lot through because you're really active on social media Mm -hmm. uh, that you're hitting a lot of these festivals, you know, Space Coast and... Mm -hmm. Rio Grande and mm-hmm. what, Galapalooza, I love that yeah. name by the way <laughs> yeah so you know is there is that part of your plan is to get out to these festivals and
1: well, absolutely i mean it's um, you know a balancing act as always because there's so many events out there that one would like to have a presence at, um, and of course that 's not possible, but we do have um, you know like Rio Grande Valley and Space Coast are big. Um, you know, kind of anchor events. Uh, we try to get out the biggest week in American birding when we, you know, whenever we can, um, you know, but we we'll also try and mix in, you know, some smaller things, too, and, of course, our own ABA things. Um, I think, and, you know, um, <laughs> the bitter truth is no one gets paid to go birding. Um, You know, I I have to explain that sometimes to uh, sort of fresh-faced teenagers and 20-somethings and everything. Um, And, of course, I don't get paid to go birding. Uh, But something's wrong if, um, you know, the staff and leadership of an organization like ABA isn't out there actually practicing what we preach. You know, I mean, it really, it's very important. And, you know, A a lot of nonprofits, um, they struggle with the the idea of do you want leadership who is really mission driven, who's just, you know, true believers and they're right in there. And and maybe they're not maybe they don't have MBAs from Harvard or Wharton, but they really eat, sleep and breathe this stuff. Or, you know, do you want um, a super administrator and. You know, he or she surround themselves with, you know, and I don't know. I I figure you can probably make it work in various ways. It's all about assembling the right team. But um, I don't know. I just feel like it's really important for ABA um, for us to have field cred, you know.
0: Right. Well, you know what, your philosophy about, you know, the members, uh, the staff of an organization being Mm -hmm. burgers themselves, it's a lot like, you know, my other passion in life, beer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sam cook at Sam Adams. Mm -hmm. It's a requirement of your employment to be a home brewer. So you could be hired, but they literally Mm. give you the equipment and go, you have to brew at least one batch Mm. so that you understand beer Mm -hmm. and work at Sam Adams. So you're kind of, you, you are an evangelist for the, in this case, a company, but you want to be an evangelist for birding, you know?
1: Right. And, and, you know, we certainly have some folks on the staff who would not call themselves birders, but, um, Um, and you know, I think one of the lessons, a lot of us in the tour industry and other industries, because birders do have a tendency to want to hire other birders. You know, we, um, we're comfortable with the culture and there's a a level of instant trust and identification, if I can say that, um, there, but you know, at the end of the day, a tour company is, is a travel business and, uh, you need people who are really adept at, booking travel and making logistical arrangements and things like that. And so uh, I guess what i found is um, any organization that has a strong specialty, you're going to need a mix. It's, it's real nice to have some people that are just, you know, totally hardcore, but you um, got to have some uh, folks that are just, hey, you know, that's cool. Not totally my thing, but it's cool.
0: Right. And, and so, you know, you're going to these, these uh, festivals, Mm-hmm. And how do you find in the communities, Are is there starting to be a pretty solid economic impact from these festivals? Are they reaching out to people? Are they making new converts? Or is it kind of this, a closed community?
1: Mm. Um, I think, you know, in a lot of things, I sort of fall back on that whole pyramid kind of analogy that you get, um, you get a, a sort of a hardcore um, that are – Investing tons of resources, time, effort, concentration into something and but you and they're important those people are important they're visible they're you know you're evangelists, et cetera but you know if, if all goes well, you get that nice supportive base that is is also into it, but you know at a lower per person level and I really do think um, especially at this point that things are shaking out kind of nicely. I think for a while there, there was almost kind of an ecotourism, like land rush or something. Like Mm -hmm. it was the new thing and everybody was going to get into it. And I think a lot of folks had some expectations about how much money was out there to be made and how fast that were not realistic and didn't pan out. But I think there's been kind of a winnowing that has occurred, <laughs> right?
0: Well, uh, a lot of that doesn't that stand from that U.S. Fish and Wildlife report that said something like "there's 46 million bird watchers." And I'm like, uh, you know, I would love it if that was true, but it's just simply not.
1: Not, not when you're starting a birding festival. Um, my friend Lisa White at Houghton Mifflin just, you know, says. Uh, You know, every time I get a book proposal and it starts with, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there are 85 million birds. You know, it's just like everybody does that trying to gauge the market. And maybe it's the market for something, but it's not the market for uh, overnight birding travel.
0: Right. And, you know, so you're going to these festivals and you're, you're seeing people become more and more involved in American Birding Association. And we talked about, you know, the old view of the American Mm -hmm. Birding Association. So as you're expanding, do you see other aspects of birding becoming more important to individual birders? Or was it always there and never expressed?
1: I think, um, and one of the things I'm fond of saying or pointing out is how young birding is as an avocation. I mean, you know, if you really want to stretch it, you might say that, In in the U.S. and Canada, people have been birding since 1934 when Peterson's first edition came out. Um, But really, I mean, the ABA is about 40 years old, and um, I would say that's about how old birding is um, in in the ABA area. And um, I think there was a little bit of a... Schism um, that you know there was a feeling, particularly back in the late sixties into the mid seventies, that that Audubon, National Audubon, and the various state Audubons and stuff were not addressing the needs of the active field birder um, as much as they once might have been, and and some of that kind of energy, I think, got the ABA going. I. I I guess what I'm seeing is, is two things. Um, I feel like now, you know, a few decades down the road, birding as you know, a lot of ABA members would understand it. Um, it's, it's, it's branching out a bit where like before, maybe there was a thing of, if you weren't out from before sunrise till after dark, if you weren't just, you know, sort of into birding to the exclusion of other things and really just focused almost entirely on that, that somehow you weren't a real birder. And I would say one of the most hopeful trends I've seen, especially when I look at some of the uh, younger adults and and kid birders coming up, is I just think that there those issues have largely been resolved. Like some people will talk about a tension between birding or listing and conservation. And I remember when I started birding in the seventies, I used to hear more about that. I still hear some people go on and on about it endlessly, but I think that battle's over. I think, uh, you know, for the vast majority of birders, they want to, they want to see new birds. They also want to see old friends. They, they want to see good bird populations and, and good bird habitat. Um, I just don't think it's the conflict that perhaps it once was. The other thing is that I see more and more people who are, I'll say, passionate about birding rather than serious, because serious just sounds blah. But, you know, people who are really into it, but they're really into it part time. It's it's one of a number of things. That they really care about and, and you mentioned microbrews before mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of birders who are into micro brews who are into wines who are into local produce and locally produced food um all this kind of stuff and you know that doesn't fit with the traditional birding stereotype again of you know in your khaki uniform out there you know maybe stopping at a convenience store or something for lunch kind of thing and and to me it's just such such of a piece if you're interested in a region and and the wine it can produce or the vegetables it can produce um what's more regional and organic than the wildlife and plants that an area produces i mean it's you know other than the obvious say mountains um how do you know that you're in montana and not iowa you know um you know i part of it is the food you can eat and the songs and music you can hear big part of it is the wildlife and the habitats. And I don't, I don't think an interest in birds and habitats should be the exclusive province of the super hardcore. Mm -hmm. So that that's one of the things I, I see that I think is really a change. And I think it's super, super positive. See a lot more tolerance of kids, um, out birding uh as well you know there's i was super lucky as like a 12 year old to be completely welcomed into a community of adult birders and, and valued almost immediately but you know there's often been this thing of oh we don't want kids around they're noisy they'll scare all the birds away mm-hmm. and i think people are starting to say you know what we better rethink this a little bit
0: <laughs> right well and you guys are kind of i think the aba has done a good job with this um, young birders program and you know, especially with, with Andrew getting the cover again.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's great. And it was great getting to meet him in his natural habitat. <laughs> yeah. In Bozeman. Uh but um yeah, you know, I I was lucky to be involved with some of these uh young birder programs like uh Victor Emanuel himself was uh one of the real pioneers of that and uh starting the vent camps, which the ABA cooperates, um on that effort, and uh, I, I led tours full time for 12 years, and uh, some of the very most memorable were a couple of uh, young birder camps that I I led in uh, northeast Mexico, and um, kids like Dan Lane and Marshall Iliff, uh, you know, were on those camps, and you know they've gone up, grown up to describe birds new to science and found eBird and. You know, all this stuff. And it's just uh, that to me, it doesn't feel like that long ago. I guess it really was. But, you know, it is just amazing to to see the you know, when kids get into this stuff, they get so into
0: it. Right. <laughs> it reminds me when when Andrew, when I first met Andrew, here was this 12 <laughs> year old kid just so excited about it. he was finding Eurasian collar doves as they were an invasive species coming into the state. Mm-hmm. And everyone else, no, 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 surely not. <laughs> you know, ah. he was finding them. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. So you know, you mentioned eBird, how some of these young birders go on to mm-hmm. take you know the technology and eBird. You know what did, what have you seen as the greatest positive impact eBird? But also, what do you think is kind of one of the negative drawbacks, or is there any negative drawback to it?
1: Um. Okay. Um let me start with the with the negative actually because I see I see very, very little negative. Um, I I understand um, eBird freaks some people out, um, especially birders who've been at it a while, because you know, our traditional channels for reporting information on birds and records and everything. They're so carefully groomed and vetted and peer-reviewed that over time, you know, you weed out all the errors to where it's sort of pure signal with very, very little noise. eBird, by contrast, is quite noisy. There's quite a lot of errors and, you know, noise in there. But the signal that's in there, I mean... Oh my God. It's undreamt of. And, and I guess that's in my own pop psychologizing way. When I see people who get freaked out by eBird, they're, they're concentrating on the noise and they're not that's, it's like listening to a radio station. That's not quite, you know, and, uh, but I just, I, I think the potential for it is almost limitless. Um, so I said I was going to start with the downside, and I kind of went right into a positive, which I guess is, is kind of indicative of I really feel very positively about it. Here's, here's the one thing that I think might – I would say is a caution rather than a negative, um, negative. And, and this isn't unique to eBird. I worry sometimes that people get pressure to bird in a particular way, um, and I see – I see this again as a symptom of our relative youth as a community that we're still kind of squabbling. We're not really sure if the citizen scientists are going to get the upper hand or the conservationists or the listers. And there's, there's just kind of this thing of everybody has a bit of a tendency to try to push their way. And, um, I'm a huge fan of people being exponents for their way. Like if you're into if you're into green birding and you do like a big B, you know, awesome. Tell me all about why doing a you know a green big year has been meaningful to you and what you've gotten out of it, and even why you like it better than in your old days when you used to chase rarities across. Awesome. Don't tell me why people who aren't doing. Green big years suck, right? Similarly with eBird, I every once in a while, some of the real eBird zealots, it's like if you're not eBirding, you're not birding. Right. I don't agree with that, but oh my gosh, you know, right. for, well, for a resource for something that is, ah, uh, it just it just knocks your socks off,
0: right? And, and and you know, and I think that's kind of the maturity of it. You know, we're. You're kind of unleashing a bunch of birders on a new technology, and
1: mm-hmm. I know
0: what the. I saw a few things about all the purple finches being on the, uh, you know, the the great uh, the backyard great, bird count. Backyard bird count, and there's like, oh, there's not that many purple finches.
1: Uh huh.
0: So there's some things like that where they're filtering out the noise. But I think that the the local uh, what do they call them? Is it compiler? They're reviewers. Reviewer, that's the term. Yeah. I think they do a good job in filtering out a lot of that noise. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, just so many data sets and everything, the more, the more you get in there, things start to wash out. And, um, it's, it's also very new. I mean, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll figure it out even better. I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, the mid nineties when birders started to discover the potential of email, and, you know, bird chat had its first big heyday and everything. And it's just like, you know, people are like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we can, you know, talk with people from all around the world and figure out all this stuff. And it's it's very exciting.
0: Right. And, and, you know, the, and kind of the really change the subject off of e bird mm-hmm. here. But, you know, I, part of this podcast and part of my interest is uh, different aspects of birding, including, you know, you could call it mindfulness or spirituality aspects of mm-hmm. birding and you know is the ABA you know through you know the birding magazine and the rest is that starting to be part of the mission as well to say you know that this it can be more than simple counting or observation
1: well i um i i write a you know it's functionally a president's letter in every issue of birding which i call birding together because that you know, is really what I'm trying to get to, um, is is growing a community and knitting a community more tightly through birding. Um, and and I, this was, I think, the January issue of last year with the birders and Hawk Mountain on the cover. And and I pointed out, you know, Birding Magazine has been very, very rare um, to have people on the cover or even inside, but especially on the cover. Generally on the cover, you've had... Uh, you know, incredibly lit, incredibly sharply focused portrait of a bird. Mm -hmm. And the point I was trying to make is that our magazine is called Birding. It's not called Bird. And that Birding is not only a relationship between a single birder and the bird that he or she is watching. It's also a relationship um, between that birder and other birders and between the birding community and the larger community. And all those aspects are are vital. And yet um, we often want to just focus on the uh, the one that's sort of through the binocular view. I'm really interested in taking all sorts of looks at it from all different angles. But I don't want to lose your you know you were asking about sort of the qualities of mindfulness and mm-hmm. and you know how birding can lead you to that i i love referring to birding as a practice i think it uh you know people will say oh it's an art it's a sport it's a science it's a game it's a waste of time it's you know whatever <laughs> but but <laughs> exactly um but um i think practice really really captures it well and uh, my other favorite way to refer to it is, is a long-term relationship um you know it it's the kind of thing of uh it's there day in and day out you uh get out of it what you put into it and you know there are some delightful surprises along the way and highs and lows and um but i i really do think that you know, birding's got this kind of ornithological background, um, which is one of the things that's given it strength. But I think every once in a while, it's kind of... I'll say, I'll go as far as to say held it back only to the sense of it's sort of kept it more narrow than I think it's needed I think, you know, if you want something to concentrate on that is going to you know, get you out of your, you know, day-to-day worries and sort of plug you back into larger processes that we're all part of, um, oh my gosh, birds are a good way to do that. You know, um, birding is a good way to do that. And so, you know, I just, I, I know for myself, um, (laughs) there, I can think of relatively few things, um, that, um, Allow me to get into that kind of flow state, that kind of, you know, dropping the ego and, and just plugging as directly as possible into the moment, into what is going on. And, and, you know, there might be sort of a cliche thing. You know, it sounds like, oh, my gosh, you know, let's get out the, the Indian rug and the hookah, you know, whatever. Um, but, but I actually find, like, in terms of just raw bird identification, I'm at my best, when i'm sort of most in the zone you know most kind of dialed in most (laughs) just um kind of letting it happen um it's when i start struggling and overthinking stuff that's when i start to make mistakes (laughs) so um yeah i i personally find it you know incredibly helpful in in cultivating that state and i uh i You know, I think Ted Floyd is the editor of Birding. You know, he and I both, more than anything, want Birding Magazine to be the voice of the entire Birding community, not just the hardcore ID community, not just the listing community, not just the conservation community. Um, So let's, uh, you know, you should write us an article on (laughs) mindful birding and and microbrews
0: working on it oh i have a good idea for a tour that's birds and beer i got awesome. an idea.
1: <laughs> okay
0: but you know you, you touched on conservation and mm-hmm. you know there's for a long time there's been this view of birders uh, more more as takers you know mm-hmm. we you know we don't have duck stamps we don't have taxes on a lot of our equipment how do you view view that perception whether it's real or not, but also mm-hmm. uh, what's the change in that, that, you know, that birding is starting to be realized as a force for conservation.
1: Okay. Um, I think our biggest issue in not being seen as effective conservationists is, is that we have not been unified. Um, you know, I have heard people say, um, you know, and this is, this is more going back, you know, a couple decades decades um, than right now, but Um, maybe people are too polite to say it to me now. I don't know, but I I would hear people say things like, well, I'm an ABA member, but I give money to the Nature Conservancy. I give money to American Bird Conservancy. Um, The idea that that ABA and birding, you know, it's more of a clubby kind of thing, and, you know, I'll pay my dues and I'll get my member benefits, but if I'm really talking about doing larger good, I'm going to go – to a more obvious charity. And and I think because if you look at individual birders, I mean and I'll admit this is anecdotal, but at this point I've been collecting a lot of anecdotes over a lot of years, and the birders I know are not out there ticking off birds and despoiling the environment. They are among the most, you know, environmentally aware, environmentally just appreciative supportive people i know they vote pro environment they you know write to their legislators right. <laughs> they contribute to causes the thing is there hasn't been that vehicle for them to identify i am doing this as a birder um and just to draw a rough parallel here do you know the first binocular that was marketed to birders
0: i don't
1: (laughs) it it was the swift audubon those eight and a half by 44 poro prisms that i think were introduced like in the early to mid 60s something like that you know not that long ago Mm -hmm. you know you think about something as integral to birding as binoculars and birders weren't really identified as a market by the optics community until well into the 60s and you know it's only very, very recently that companies have started to think of us as. I think I think LL Bean actually just added a little birding tab to their, you know, that you can actually buy gear for birding. Um, so,
0: which is remarkably <laughs> similar to the gear for
1: hiking. Uh, remarkably, <laughs> remarkably, but um, probably just less colorful. I don't know. Um, anyway, the uh, uh, my my point being. Um, people forget that birding is new and other things have had more time. And, you know, thank God for Pittman Robinson, you know, thank God for the waterfowl stamp. Um, those programs were inaugurated in an era when tax wasn't a four letter word. Right. Um, you know, and people say, ah, teeming with wildlife, you know, that failed and everything. I, Different times. And um, I think we have so much to learn from the hunting community, from the angling community, from the general conservation community. But at the end of the day, each group needs to come up with its own rituals, its own songs, its own dances, all these things. And what I've seen is when you give birders a chance to contribute to something that reaches them as birders, they're on it. They are totally on it. And I'll, I'll just throw out one quick example the Delaware Birdathon that uh, was spearheaded and still is by my friend Bill Stewart, who's ABA's Director of Partnership and Marketing. Um, you know, everybody and their brother has a Birdathon, and their sister, and their cousin, and their aunt, and their uncle. Generally, Birdathons can only raise money from the immediately surrounding area where they're held because they're. You know they're raising money to keep the club going, or you know, great stuff. But well, Bill had the idea that you know we're sitting in, De- in Delaware on the shores of Delaware Bay. We've got this horseshoe crab spawning, this shorebird stopover with the red knots and and about a dozen other species of shorebirds that are dependent on this phenomenon. This is something that birders everywhere care about, and we're just a few birders. When we're small, but let's let's raise money to buy parcels of land right on the Delaware Bay shore where horseshoe crabs spawn and shorebirds come to feed and, you know, see where that takes us. And right away, having that focus opened the door for us to get support from literally around the world. Um, That was just beyond anything we had anticipated. Because, you know, as great as some of these larger organizations are, There's sometimes a feeling of if I send my 50 bucks to X, Y, Z, well, I might get a tote bag, but then I'm going to get 19 other solicitations for more funds. And I, you know, I think my money's going to good stuff. And honestly, it is. But um, very, very powerful to give birders a direct route to doing things that matter to them as birders. And particularly things that they think might be falling through the cracks a little bit otherwise. Now, I want to be careful. You know, TNC Nature Conservancy has a fantastic program on the Delaware Bay Shore. Um, there's a variety it's not like DOS is the only one paying attention to that. I don't mean to suggest that at all. But but boy, give birders a route to do conservation in a birderly way. Mm-hmm. Guarantee they'll do it. So that I feel is one of my biggest charges is to help facilitate that process to help us develop our own ways of giving back.
0: Right. So, yeah, and, and it's not that you're stepping on other organizations. There's more than enough of that right. pie to help to go around.
1: Right, right. Ab- absolutely.
0: And, and so, you know, ABA, you know, as you have this conservation bent, are there ideas for, you know, kind of uh, part, you know, partnerships with existing, you know, like Nature Conservancy to do, Mm -hmm. Pushes, whether it's an education push or, you know, some of these collaborative efforts?
1: Yeah, um, you know, and and we have, uh, you know, last year we partnered with National Audubon um, on um, um, stopping drilling in the Arctic. And I I heard that actually Shell's not going to do that um, this summer, which is kind of cool. The... um, And, you know, we've worked with ABC on a couple of things, um, you know, cats and doors and bird friendly wind power and uh, bird smart wind power. Um, So I think there's tons of opportunities to collaborate and to not reinvent the wheel. Like, you know, there's things that ABC does a fantastic job on that ABA is naturally interested in. And I think we can find ways to help and support that and vice versa. Um, you know, Cornell with eBird and all their citizen science effort citizen science efforts. Again, I think there's some natural partnerships there. Um but um yeah, I'm I'm always looking for ways we can sort of say, um, what's what's the thing the birders are gonna do that uh nobody else is gonna do? And and some of that, frankly, there's a a population level to that. Um You know, and and, and conservation, at the end of the day, it's all about maintaining populations, you know, keeping reproductively viable populations and habitats and all that. But I think sometimes, in addition to, like, important bird areas, there are important birding areas. And sometimes those don't overlap exactly with the great uh, population reservoirs. Now, if I have a choice, uh, yeah, I mean, if I'm – Forced to make a choice it 's more important to have the population reservoirs. but I think it's very important too to have places where people can interact with birds in a positive way and and sometimes you know a lot of times as birders we 're looking for things on the periphery of their range um, Those peripheral populations may be insignificant from a a true conservation standpoint those individuals may be biologically meaningless they can be very emotionally meaningful to birders right. and 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 i think help i mean you know it's one thing to see and you know god like uh i think it's garrett vinn and cornell that came back with this incredible video of spoon sandpipers and yes most of us will never see one um you know, that may be the only way we see that bird, and, and that's fantastic. But, you know, seeing a snowy owl, seeing, you know, um, some of these fabulous birds that turn up in southeast Arizona and Texas, either as, you know, breeders or vagrants or whatever, I mean, it, it to me, it just makes it real to you in a way that no amount of looking on the web or, you know, reading a book or whatever can possibly do. So, uh, I, I'd, I'd like to see the ABA work on improving birding areas um, as well as bird habitats.
0: And when you say improving birding areas, you know, that, that's you know, working on the conservation of those areas, but also maybe even promotional areas. So people, because always I have this philosophy that if a person can't visit it it's not of any real tangible value to most people so you almost have to say oh yeah that's important for the species but we also have to make sure that people can get eyes on it as well if that makes sense
1: i think it it absolutely makes sense and if i can <laughs> my days as a park ranger and everything uh one of my warning signals um was anytime um an interpreter or anything would would say we're loving blank to death we're loving the resource to death and um there probably are a few instances of like uh pictographs and you know of course things like uh frescoes in the Sistine Chapel and stuff where you know or, or uh cave paintings right you know where human traffic through those sites really Really negatively impacts them, you know birds are different. birds are a renewable resource, and I think we make a terrible mistake if we look at them as museum pieces that we have to keep people away from um, and I um, sometimes birding is in photography and all that is referred to as non consumptive or non extractive um, I would rather we refer to it is what I think it is, which is lightly consumptive. Um, I think sometimes in our zeal to make birding zero consumption, which is a fool's errand, it will never happen, um, we just get lost in, you know, looking at birds is very, very low impact. You know, it, uh, you know, hey, uh, compare a, a morning of duck hunting with a morning of duck watching. One of those activities is a lot more impact than the other right? And, and can be shared with a lot more people. It's, that's not a swipe at hunting or hunters. It's, it's really not. But, but it also, I think speaks that, you know, stuff that makes sense for hunters won't necessarily translate one to one with stuff for birders. It's, it's just different. and, and, to me, one of the things that's so fantastic about it, and this goes kind of back to the social media thing, is how shareable it is, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think it's absolutely fantastic that people want to get kids out fishing. They want to get kids out hunting. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of equipment, you know? Um a lot hard of
0: money to, these days. <laughs> yeah,
1: hard to do in big groups. But, you know... Hey, you get a, a nice bald eagle perched up on a dead tree a uh, hundred meters or a couple hundred meters away, <laughs> line up some spotting scopes. I can I can show that bird to five hundred people. Right. And they can all have this incredible experience. And the bird, when it gets bored, it flies away. Right. You know? <laughs> and um I think it, it, I'm very, very concerned about the impacts that birders have on birds and bird habitats and birding areas. But I'm afraid we waste too much time as a community, again, trying to get that meter to, to go all the way to zero when I'd, I'd much rather say, yeah, you know what, burning, we do, actually, we do actually consume some resources here. We do actually have some impact. But look at the good we do with it. You know, look at how we're able to leverage that impact to get people really excited about what they plant in their yards what they choose for land use around them, what they support with their dollars, uh, tax dollars, recreational dollars, et cetera, et cetera. Birds have an impeccable track record for getting people interested in nature. They have always been one of the groups of organisms that people key into. And I think they're an incredibly powerful way to, to move people from disengagement to engagement. So right.
0: so, <laughs> so the, the one of the last things I want to touch upon is you guys got your new uh ABA bird of the year, mm-hmm. which is the Nighthawk. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask how did you come up with Nighthawk? What was the decision making process?
1: Well I'll I'll admit that um the bird of the year thing, it was something that we, you know, that was one thing I wanted to get going right when I got in here. I wanted a a visible kind of self-renewing way of keeping um, people's identity as ABA members in the fore, in, in, in the front. And um, so far it has been the staff um, getting together and saying um, what would be good. And the Kestrel – was kind of a no-brainer because uh, there had been for a while sort of a, a semi-failed attempt to talk about changing the ABA logo, and um, turned out the biggest vote getter was "Don't change the logo." But um, but the None second the
0: above, huh?
1: right, The second biggest, and and honestly, I think ABA's logo does a very good. It does the work of a logo very well. Um, but the American Kestrel was the second vote getter, and it just seemed perfect. you know it was a bird everybody loves beginner to expert, a bird with a conservation story, a common widely distributed bird um and it you know it wasn't a five striped sparrow or a Sprague's pipit, um which people might have tended to think of as a b a birds so uh then the next year um we just sort of said, okay, you know, maybe we'll do a songbird. And uh, and we hit on the idea of evening gross speak, especially. It's all, you know, it's very gregarious and loud and in your face. And seeing them can be kind of a transformative experience. And so that all seemed to fit. And then from there, it's like, okay, we've done a raptor. We've done a songbird. Um, and I think the thing that sold us on Common Nighthawk was um, – You know, still widely distributed, still pretty accessible. Uh, A champion long-distance migrant, which the other two aren't. Um, Definitely some conservation story with uh, people changing the kind of roofing material they use and uh, the impacts that's having on nighthawks. And um, there's a taxonomic story there, a lot of subspecies. Um, And and then also that that nighthawks... Night jars in general, but Nighthawks being the most visible of that group, um, they seem to operate kind of in two worlds. They sort of span that gap between diurnal and nocturnal and between city and country and between a bird that even people who, you know, just aren't birders at all, you know, just farmers or, you know, people outdoors, whatever, they know and notice common Nighthawks. But, you know... Uh, one of those things that once you have that experience and realize, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff going on with birds and birding, um, they, they reward, um, they reward scrutiny. You know, the the more attention you pay to them, the more, uh, they give back. And so, uh, I guess all those things, um, led us to think that common nighthawk would be a good choice.
0: Well, that's great. And so you got the common nighthawk, but what's next for the ABA and what's next for Jeff Gordon in terms of birding? Do you have anything trips planned or anything interesting coming up?
1: Well, um, we um, you know, was pleased to bring on George Armistead as our uh, events coordinator um, a little less than a year ago, and he's done a fantastic job uh, getting our events program back really rolling again and. Uh, Uh, Right now, we're actually opening registration tomorrow for San Diego um, this fall. Um, We are looking at, uh, oh, a winter Massachusetts thing next year. Uh, We're even looking at a South Africa trip for uh, fall of 14. Um, So, you know, really trying to get a diversity of of good kinds of birding trips. I also want us to do trips closer to population centers, uh, events closer to population centers. Uh, So look for some things oriented that way. We already had a tremendously successful Young Birders Conference last fall in Delaware. We'll be doing more of those kinds of things. Um, Watch for some birder conservation initiatives. Um, We are working on those. And, um, um, you know, I, uh, I think... I I've had a really clear vision for some time now that in in many ways, you know, we uh when we would go to these festivals, uh, you know, people always in the trade show area, there's like a table and you know, if you go into an ABA booth a few years ago, it it was like you were walking into a book. Uh there was just kind of print and signs and things everywhere and and ABA has a terrific publications program, but it just occurred to me Um, ABA needs to be about it needs to be the place where the interesting conversations are happening and I said let's get rid of that table let's not bring so many books let's rent some nice comfy couches and let's make a little lounge where people will come in they'll sit down and they'll talk and, uh, that's really become like kind of one of our trademarks in the last year and a half or so here is this ABA lounge and, and making it a comfortable spot where birders can get together and share information, share their experience and figure out what we as a community want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, um, to me, leadership, leadership involves a heck of a lot of listening, right? um
0: so. so when you're not listening where do you have any good birding trips planned for just you uh,
1: nothing nothing on the books um liz and i are looking really forward to to going up to the the kachemak bay shorebird festival in homer in may that'll be only my second time in alaska and liz's first um but uh, uh our 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 recent birding vacation was that swing we took up your way around Yellowstone over uh, Christmas and New Year's. And uh, that was a thrill to finally see that country in the winter and great gray owls and bohemian waxwings and hearing wolves howl and, and all that. So, um, yeah, well, we'll get something worked up here, but, but that was the, the most recent one.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, <laughs> Jeff, thank you for, for being a guest on More Than Birds, and mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks so much, Rad.